So this, uh, this fall, we're looking at the challenge of finding balance in an age of extremes. And as I've said every week, I think I had a tendency, I, well, I still have a tendency to, to log on to one thing at a time, one ideal, one truth, one, one priority, and just, just zero in on that one thing. And, but I found over the years that really what we all need to do is balance multiple things at a time. And, you know, the, the, the place we want to be is not just zeroed in on one particular thing, but ba balancing and maintaining multiple realities at the same time. And so today I want to talk about the balance between quiet and connection, or the balance between solitude and community. And because the Bible talks about the importance of community, but it also talks about the importance of being able to be alone. It talks about the importance of hearing from other people. It also talks about the importance of hearing directly from God. It talks about how our communion with other people is, is essential, but it also talks about how we're not going to know that unless we know what it is to be in communion with God individually. And our text for today is Psalm 42, and it's actually a remarkable psalm because he touches on both of these dynamics in just a, a few verses. So if you want to find this in your program, these verses might be familiar to some of you. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within thee? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This is God's word for God's people this morning. Bruce Springsteen sang, it was a long time ago now, but he sang a song where he said that everybody's got a hungry heart. And there was something catching about that for, for certain people of a certain age, where uh, you know we start singing that and everybody would sing along because everybody recognizes or I, I think maybe we're relieved to hear that it's not just my heart that's hungry, but all of our hearts are hungry. And, and the hunger of my heart isn't something that's my own unique agony. It's the universal experience of all of our friends and all of our neighbors. And this passage addresses the dynamic, and it talks about where that hunger comes from. It locates the hunger of your heart and my heart in a universal longing that we all have. And it says that that longing is a longing for God. Now, I understand in the year 2019, it's, it might sound a little weird to say something like that, or super pious, or super religious, but I, I believe that the reason it's hard for us to recognize that our real hunger in life is a hunger for God is because in, in the modern world, in the secular world, we've built so many other structures and so many other resources that we stuff into that cavity where God is supposed to go. And so we don't recognize and we don't really experience the, the hunger for God as 
as it is. And there's a couple of different ways we do that. Let me just go through a couple of them real quick. One is I think we've built in modern life what I call a culture of distraction. And that is we've got a constant stream of stuff coming at us so we never really have to think. You know, I, I remember, I'm, I'm relatively old, but when I was growing up, they'd have breaking news on TV maybe once or twice a year, you know, when the president got shot, when there was an earthquake in California or something like that. Have you noticed that every night there's breaking news now? And someone has said, now the news, it's not breaking news, it's broken news. I mean, I, sometimes I turn on TV and they're like, breaking news. I'm like, oh, I better watch this. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, why am I watching this? Have you, have you noticed that? So, so we just have this, this sort of constant stream of information coming at us. And related to that is there's sort of this unending stream of entertainment. It's all, and, and if, you get, if you get caught up in one of the algorithms, you know, YouTube will, sh will send you four days worth of videos that you can't resist watching. Have any of you ever go, found yourself in that wormhole? Or uh, Netflix starts sending you all these series, and once you start them, you just can't stop? But, but there's this, 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 this uh, abundance of entertainment. And then also, there's a constant connection. You know, it used to be when you stepped out of the office or stepped out of your home, nobody could reach you until you went back home. But now, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, if your friend just wants to call up and uh, talk about the game tomorrow or whatever, they can reach you. And, and every call feels like an urgent thing that you've got to respond to, even if it's just a friend who's bored who's just uh, calling to chat. And so we're, we're constantly connected. We have all this entertainment. We have all these urgent things that we've got to attend to. And I think all of that combines to, to keep us from experiencing, to, to keep us from recognizing the spiritual hunger that is in each of our hearts, the spiritual hunger that Bruce Springsteen sang about. And so what happens as a result of that is that hunger never gets satisfied, but instead it, it kind of forces its way up in other ways and in more destructive ways. And I think there's, you know, there's an alternate holy trinity that a lot of us get caught up in, three main com competitors for God in our life. And that holy trinity is money, power, and sex. And each of these become things or areas where from time to time we get, we get all caught up and all obsessed and it, it becomes something that substitutes or takes the place that, that our passion for God or our hunger for God should take. Let's talk about power for a second. For a second. I think the way this manifests in our world today is in the obsession with politics rather than just being engaged in politics, you know, in the fall, you're like, okay, let me look at the issues and figure out which candidate I agree with, and I'll go vote, vote for them and let them govern us. Now politics has become this tribal identity thing. You know what I mean? Where I, I, I was talking to, to uh, someone who was studying the dating world, and they said the new thing is people, people specify that they can't date anyone who's not in their political party. You know, and, and that, that's kind of strange to me because, you know, as a pastor, one of the things I'm always saying is, well, you shouldn't date someone who's not spiritually compatible with you, someone who doesn't share your spiritual convictions. And a lot of people push back against that. But it seems like it's easy for everybody to say, well, I'm not going to date anyone who, who is in the opposite party that I'm a part of. But the reason I think we become obsessed with power is because we're looking for a messiah in another form. If we don't believe in the Savior, will any Savior will do. Whoever gets the most votes in the primaries this year will have to install them in that position. And uh, 
you know, incidentally, this is one of the signs of the church's decline as well. Both on the left and on the right, one of the ways the church has rendered itself irrelevant is by getting overly involved in partisan politics. Because what happens is the church thinks it's getting more powerful by influencing partisan politics, by trying to influence an election, but then it just becomes a tool of the partisans, and partisans quickly realize, or more importantly, church members quickly realize that there's better ways to accomplish these ends. So the challenge for the church is to not get sucked up on this, and, and this is not a partisan statement because bo churches on bo both sides of the aisle have, have gotten caught up in this, and to recognize that the church needs to be the church. And so, so power is one of the things that, that substitutes for God in our life and in our churches. Another one is money, and I think that's an obvious thing. Jesus says over and over again that God's greatest competitor for your heart, God's greatest competitor for, for your trust and for your faith is money. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, we tend to put our trust in money that we have or money that we don't have as the thing that's going to establish our lives. And then thirdly, the third member of the Holy Trinity after power and money is sex. And, you know, we live in a sex-saturated a sex-saturated society, and I think one of the reasons sex has been elevated the way it has is because we've taken God himself out of the picture, and so, so sex is the one thing that offers us the potential for a transcendent experience. You know, for those who have given up on God, for, for people who are following God, sex can be a gift from God to be used the way God has directed. For people who have given up on an experience with God and on a relationship with God, sex very easy, easily can become God for us, and rather than being one of God's gifts. Michael Kuziak quotes G.K. Chesterton, and G.K. Chesterton wrote that when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, this was hundreds of years ago, he's actually knocking for God. Kuziak explains, if he were writing today, he might say that the man who surfs the web for pornography is actually looking for God. If nothing else, this truth that means that sex is a signpost to God. See, we've got these intense desires. We've got desires and they come out in various ways in our ambition, in our, in our concern for money, in our, in our struggle for power, in our, in our pursuit of intimacy. But really all of those desires from the Bible's perspective should point us to God because he alone is the one that can satisfy us. And that's why the psalmist says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My soul longs for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with my God? And one of the, the signposts to me that all of these desires don't actually, won't actually fill our hearts is if you look at the people in the world who've attained everything this world has to offer, who've enjoyed real power, who've, who've enjoyed lots of success in different areas of their life, one of the things that they report back to regular people like me is that it's not all it's cracked up to be. 
do you guys remember, are any of you old enough to remember Jim Carrey, the uh, comedic actor? I mean, some of you are. In, in the 90s, he was, he was a, a, a famous actor. You know, if you don't know what to do this afternoon after the harvest party, go watch Dumb and Dumber. And, <laughs> and you'll, you'll get Jim Carrey. But, but he, was, <laughs> he, was, uh, he, he was a very successful actor in the 90s and accomplished quite a bit. And then, then he had kind of a, a, a he, he retreated from public life for a while, and he went through on his own journey. And you know, the, the good thing about making millions and millions of dollars for several years in a row is you have the, the freedom to go on your journey. And, uh, and so he, he did that, and he reported back on the other side. He did an interview, and one of the things he said, he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of doing so that they can see that that is not the answer. And so, you know, you might never have the wealth or the relationships or the power that you'd like to have, but believe Jim Carrey. He says, even if you get it all, all you will discover is it's actually not the thing that your heart longs for. It's actually not what's going to, to satisfy you. And, you know, sometimes these desires are subtle, but what I've noticed with people, a lot of times these desires, they start to roar. They take over our lives. They take control of us. Sometimes the hunger of our heart is, is sort of a, a dull ache in our soul. Sometimes the hunger of our heart is so ravenous that we can't help but fill it. And so we get consumed by an addiction. We get consumed by anger. We get consumed by depression or anxiety. All of these pathologies, I think, go back to that hunger of our hearts not being met, not being satisfied the way it needs to be. And, you know, sometimes we look at our lives and have you ever wondered why am I feeling this way? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I destroying my life this way? And you wonder, and I think the answer is because that hunger in our hearts will not be denied. We've got to satisfy it. But the Bible tells us the hunger in your heart, the hunger in my heart is a hunger for God himself. But here's the problem. The reason we don't hear it is because God doesn't shout at us and say, look over here, I'm right here. You know, God generally whispers to us. And we've got to quiet down. We've got to settle down in order to hear his voice. If we never turn off the TV, if we never turn off our phones, if we never, if we never turn off our computers, we'll never hear the voice of God because those distractions will will consume us until there's nothing left. <laughs> Gerald May is a psychiatrist, just, just recently passed, but he, he spent his whole life in the field of addiction recovery and, help, and his career was built around the study of addiction and how people recover from addiction. And he said something interesting in his book, Addiction and Grace. He was also a very devout Christian in addition to being a, a, a uh, clinical psychiatrist. He said, he said this, and I've used this as a benchmark in my life. He says he'd never met somebody who was an addict, who was a full-blown addict, who could sit for 15 minutes in silence and wait for God. So it's a question for all of us. Could you... I mean, it doesn't sound like a big thing to do. It doesn't sound like a hard thing to do. But could you sit for 15 minutes in silence, your phone off with, uh, with everything off, and just wait for God? Ask, ask God to speak to you. Ask God to minister to your heart and listen, listen to God. I think that that's a benchmark for all of us because God doesn't speak to us. 
God doesn't reveal himself to us by, well, well sometimes he, he does by grabbing us and, and shouting us, but most of the time, he's right there and he's speaking to us and we're just drowning him out and we can't understand why we've got this nagging pain in our gut. You know, our strong desires, our passions, even our addictions and compulsions, I think, ultimately, those are our hunger for God manifesting itself by other means. And so that's the longing of the psalmist as he writes here, is that longing for the presence of God. And then what he talks about is how he used to know God, how he used to experience God. He says, well, how he, he thinks back, look at verse 4. These things I remember. He feels his hunger and he says, I remember this as I pour out my soul. I remember how I used to go up to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. He, and you know what he's talking about there? I'll just give you context of that. This, this was an Israelite from the, from the first century. And, and what they used to do is the devout, the devout Jewish people on the high holy days, they would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they'd go and they'd celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or, or other holidays. And, but the way they did it is, you know, they didn't have cars, they didn't have trains, they didn't have planes, is the whole village would kind of walk together towards the city. And maybe it would be a multi-day journey. Sometimes people would travel, travel 60, 70 miles on foot in order to, to make these journeys. So, so it would be like a, a rolling party that people would participate in. And, and he's, uh, he's thinking about that, and, and they, they would make it so, so fun. It would be this thing that everybody anticipated and everybody looked forward to and everybody enjoyed. And he's thinking about that, and he's like, that's when I felt the experience of God, when I was traveling with my friends and my family to Jerusalem, when we'd go to Jerusalem and we'd celebrate these holidays and we'd, we'd meet with the priests and we'd offer our sacrifices and we'd sing the songs and pray the prayers and we'd have the sense together that we were in God's presence, that we were experiencing him and that God was at work in us. And so that's, that's the signpost for us, even though we'll only feel our hunger for God when we're alone, it's together with other people, with co fellow pilgrims, that our hunger for God is satisfied, that we hear the voice of God and that we experience the presence of God. So the, our hunger for God is felt in solitude, but it's satisfied in community, in ritual, in retreat, in time that's set aside. And now back in in Old Testament times, there was a temple. You remember some of you have heard the story of the temple in Jerusalem, and that's what all of Israel's worship was built around. It was built around going to the temple. That's where the priesthood was. That's where the sacrifices were offered. And that was really the only place where things could be, uh, where, where things could be uh, celebrated, where sacrifices could be made, where the priests could serve, and things like that. Uh, and, and it was important in Jewish tradition from the very beginning that there was only one temple. One of the ways that the Jews distinguished themselves from other faiths is that they didn't have multiple temples all over the place, but there was one temple in Jerusalem, and that was where all the sacrifices took place. And that's why devout Jews today and believing Jews today might celebrate all of these holidays, but they don't really celebrate them with a priesthood, with sacrifices and things like that, because there is no temple for them to go to. And so, that, so this, this psalm is, is, is 
is written by somebody who was experiencing that. He was longing for the temple, longing to go to the place where he would meet God, go to the place, go to God's palace, go to God's throne room, make his offering to God and hear the voice of God. That's what it all represented. He was longing to do that, but he couldn't do that for whatever reasons. And that's been the experience of the people of God throughout the ages. Now, what the New Testament tells us is that everything the temple represented was fulfilled and realized in the person and work of Christ. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple Jesus spoke of was his body. That's because once Jesus came, now the place where you would meet with God, the place where you would see the sacrifice of God, the place where you would hear the voice of God is in the person of Jesus, in the body of Jesus, in the life of Jesus. And so that's, so, so Jesus himself replaced the temple as a place where we experience God. Je Jesus says, you used to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to meet with God. Now just come to me and you can meet with God. You used to offer your sacrifices to connect with God. Now trust in me as the final sacrifice. Now the apostles extended this. And in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2, Paul talks about this. He says, in Jesus... The whole building, that is the temple, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. He says, you know, in Jesus, we are being built together to become a temple in which God lives by his spirit. That's about us. It's about a collection of believers coming together intentionally in the presence of God. That's the reason for church. That's the reason we come together the way that we do. Because, because this, this is how we can experience God in a new way. In the Old Testament times, the temple was a building. Now what Paul says and what Peter says is that now the temple is the gathering of believers. In, in 1 Peter 2, he puts it this way. You are living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's his description of the church. That's, that's what Peter says the church is. We're all living stones. Each one of you is an essential brick in the temple. And when we come together, all the stones form a house. And in that house, the presence of God is available. The presence of God is here. And so here we are. We're in a multi-purpose room in a charter school. And, but what God says is that this gathering is special. This gathering is important is because this gathering right now is actually the temple of the living God. This is a, a place where God is present sacramentally and present in a special way in a place where we can hear from him and a place where we can experience him. You know, in the Old Testament, people went to Jerusalem, to the temple for the priesthood and for the sacrifices and for the experience of God. In the New Testament, he says the temple is right here, right now. And it's as we come together that we experience God's presence. So our hunger for God is felt in solitude. It's felt in silence, but it's satisfied when we come together, satisfied when we get together with other believers. Now, 
this psalm is tremendously realistic. He talks about his longing for God. He talks about his recollection of those beautiful days and the pilgrimage to Jerusalem that he probably remembers from his childhood. And then he says, you know, I don't have that anymore. Those days are gone. Maybe he lived in a time when the temple had been destroyed or shut down and there was no temple to go to. Maybe he had been carried off into captivity and people would, would just mock him. It says people would ask him, where is your God? What are you doing? And he, he was thinking about going to Jerusalem where God lived in his temple. And, uh, you know, in a sense, I think in our lives, all of us have times like that. All of us have places like that when we're living with longing and loss and our deepest desires, desires for good things, desires for God himself feel like they're unmet. And that's what he's talking to. That's what he's speaking to. And that's perhaps something that you can relate to in your life when, when the things that you want or even your desire for God doesn't seem to be something that God himself is honoring. But what he does here is he jumps into a level of self-awareness about that. He realizes that he's depressed. He realizes that he's discouraged. And he talks to himself. He engages in positive self-talk. Look at verse 5. He says, My soul, why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior and my God. He's talking to himself there, and he's saying, he's reminding himself, he's like, you have reason for hope. The promises of God are still active. The promises of God are still valid. And even though your life might be falling apart right now, even though your longings might be unbearable right now, even though your heart might be broken right now, God is making all things new. Because see, the Bible calls us to live in hope, but hope by definition means that we're not there yet. Hope, by definition, means that right now things are kind of a mess, but I believe that God is going to bring restoration. Hope, that when we say we're living by hope, we're acknowledging that life right now is suboptimal, but God is going to optimize it. Life right now is broken, but God is going to restore it. And that's, that's the essence of what hope is. Romans 8 puts it this way, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we're waiting for it patiently. So to live with hope is to live in the mess and the brokenness and loss and the longing of this life, believing that God is going to bring restoration and God is going to bring redemption. And that's one of the reasons, one of the things that community can be a powerful a powerful aid to is because sometimes when we are around other people and we're encouraged by other people, we're helped by other people, that gives us hope, that renews our hope. Because the promise of God is not that everything's going to be okay today or tomorrow, but that God is making all things new. The psalmist reminds himself, he preaches to himself, that I'm living in hope, which means that right now things are painful, but I know things are going to get better. And C.S. Lewis said in this regard, he says, sometimes we find ourselves with longings that nothing in this world can satisfy. We find ourselves with desires that nothing in this world can resolve. We find ourselves with losses that nothing in this world can replace. But C.S. Lewis says that should point us as followers of Christ to the fact that we're made for another world, that ultimately there's another world where these longings will be satisfied, where the broken things will be restored, and where, and where our connection with God will 
be made real. The reason believers have hope is because Jesus came. The story of the gospel is that Jesus entered into our brokenness, entered into our loss, and entered into our frustration. And the most hopeless day in all of history was the day when he laid down his life, when he sacrificed himself. It seemed to his disciples on that day that he had completely failed in his mission to restore all things. But we know that that hopeless day led to the day of ultimate hope and restoration when all things were put back together, when all things were made new. When, when, he, wrote, when he rose again from the dead, giving us an assurance that God has the ability to take the brokenness, and take the loss, even take the evil, the vindictiveness, and the failure of, the, of his followers and create something beautiful and perfect out of that. And so that's the promise for us, you know, as we live in the brokenness of our world, as we live in a li lives where our hopes are deferred, as we live with our broken hearts, and as we live with our broken bodies, as we live with, with broken relationships and everything else that we live with, we can live with hope, believing that God is going to make, bring ultimate restoration. Bruce Springsteen goes on to say, everybody needs a place to rest and everybody wants to have a home. And it makes no difference what anybody says because nobody likes to be alone. The promise of the gospel for you and for me is that we don't have to if we'll come to the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray for those who are uh, brokenhearted today, who are in too much pain for one reason or another to, to really believe and even really feel the, the reality of this hope. I pray that you would give us all a new sense of hope, a new sense of restoration, a new sense of why it is we can hold on and what it is we have to look forward to as we live by hope. Father, make us, make our church, a true temple of the living God, a spiritual house in which people come to have an authentic and real connection with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.